to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. Are we there yet? <laughs> and I'm Don Fernando Azevedo, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, your mechanic. And no, Ben, we're not there yet. And you, dear listener, are in the driver's seat. Put on some tunes and let's roll. And today's quote is from Sue Detweiler. Keeping your heart open provides the opportunity for greater intimacy. Last week, we started looking at the primary relationship in the choice category, your significant other or spouse. You both had some great ideas about how to choose well. The question really is how do you keep it going for decades? For that matter, Don, how do you know if it is going well or if it's going poorly? Well, the key thing to pay attention to are the behaviors on a day-to-day -day basis. What's happening in the relationship? There are four areas to consider when you're measuring how well things are going. There's intellectual intimacy, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, and spiritual intimacy. You can use a 10-point scale to measure these things. So one meaning that it's not going well, and 10 meaning that it's great and you can't imagine it being better. If you evaluate these areas uh, on a monthly, maybe quarterly basis, it gets things on track and keeps you from falling too far off the rails. Or driving off the road? Something like that. Rails, roads, all the same thing. All right, so let's break down each type of intimacy here. There's four quadrants. Let's start with intellectual. Don, what does that mean? What is intellectual intimacy? So intellectual intimacy is, is probably the intimacy that you share with most of your close circle of friends. This is the sharing of thoughts and ideas, beliefs, analysis, synthesis of information. It's your worldview and sharing it with your partner. It can also be your plans for what you would like to create into the future. When a relationship is going very well, you'll share those thoughts and ideas. You may even bring your partner, hey, this is a cool book I just read. Do you want to read it? Maybe a documentary or a television show or art or anything that stimulates a conversation about meaning in the world. Seems pretty legit. Do you want to add anything to that? I don't know that there's anything to add to that. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty good nutshell of intellectual intimacy. You calling me a nut? Just a shell. Yes, a whole nutshell. So let's move on to the second area. How about, Kim, can you tell us about emotional intimacy? So emotional intimacy is the connection, the trust and communication between two people. You're going to have this with your friends, but here we're talking about your significant other, your spouse. And this brings forth your sense of comfort, passion, romance, that feeling of overall closeness and connection to your other person. Emotional intimacy is created through mutual respect, spending time together. Uh, humor is a huge part of creating emotional intimacy. We become closer with those that we laugh with. Uh, it's kind of like that bad joke, those who game together stay together. I don't know. You, if you laugh together, you stay together. Well, you know, laughing keeps your heart open. And that quote of the day talked about, if you have an open heart, you have more likelihood to have intimacy. Emotional intimacy also comes from the decision to confide in your partner what's happening for you at any given point in time. That's a, an important piece. That's the willingness, if you remember back from uh, last episode, to share who you are and what's going on with you. Now, you talked about trust, and one of the things that you're trusting in is that if I give you this 
very vulnerable part of me, this emotional part of me, that you won't use it against me sometime later down the road. Nope. Going to throw it in your face. Well, and then we're not going to be very intimate because I won't share anything into the future. That's when we hit the one. It's also important not to tell someone you don't feel that way. And often when we get upset, our partner is upset or scared or hurt. We don't want them to feel that way. So we tell them you don't feel that way. You have to be willing to sit with your partner's emotional distress as well as your partner's emotional elation. Give me some examples of a way that you would say to your partner that they don't feel that way. Because I don't think most of us go around with our partners saying, I'm sad, and just say, you don't feel sad. But I know what you mean is that your actions and the way that you're talking to them means that. But what's an example of like some language that that would imply? So this is kind of that overwhelming positivity, you know, going to your partner and saying, oh, I had a bad day. And the other person coming back with, well, tomorrow's going to be great. You're going to do fine. It's going to be okay. Right. Sort of invalidating that feeling. Yeah. It's, it's that overwhelming opposite of whatever you're sharing. Mm-hmm. Instead of just being there with you, so, oh, what happened with your day? And acknowledging, I'm sorry that you had a bad day. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'm right here with you. And it's okay. And we can be upset for a minute before we go, all right, well, at least the day's over and tomorrow might be better. You got this. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't be positive when your partner is experiencing negative emotion, but you need to acknowledge the negativity mm-hmm. and accept it before you can help move through it. Correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. And those two skills, the com- combination of confiding, choosing to share, and validating, uh, recognizing what your per- the person was experiencing, those two together increase intimacy. All right. So that's intellectual and emotional intimacy. The third one I've got here is physical intimacy, which I am concerned to toss towards Papa Don. But <laughs> Dr. Don, what do you have for us on physical intimacy? <laughs> How do you know about that? Anyway, um, you'll be delighted to know that physical intimacy is a whole lot more than sex. What? I don't know that I'm delighted to know that. <laughs> So everybody thinks of physical intimacy as sex or eroticism, and that is one component of physical intimacy. But the other components of physical intimacy are lighter and deeper, interestingly enough. Lighter in the sense that just touch, giving a hug, holding a hand, sometimes even just looking at someone with admiring eyes. All of those are physical intimacy activities. But the downside, the part that most people don't want to think about is part of being in a committed relationship, like a married relationship, is the willingness to take care of the physical needs of your partner. Like when they're sick, you know, being in the bathroom, holding their hair back when they throw up in the toilet. Or, you know, cleaning up after the bed has been messed because they've been sick there. Or just taking care of them, bringing them chicken soup getting them to and from doctor's appointments, sitting in chemotherapy, holding their hand while they go through that. All of those things are physical intimacy too. And that's hard, but that's part of what you sign up for. And also respecting their physical intimacy limits. So I know sickness, right? And sometimes people want to be there all the time to make sure that you're doing okay and bring you chicken noodle soup and give you water and all of this stuff. And some people, that's not what they want or need. Uh, So paying attention to and talking with your partner about that limit around the physical intimacy, because sometimes it is overwhelming and sometimes that's a huge shutdown 
for your partner. So making sure that while, yes, this is physical intimacy and closeness, that your partner's on board with that closeness. Yes. Mm -hmm. I just had a thought about all of these so far. I think the word intimacy has a certain connotation to it, which is why when you put it, especially next to a word like physical, you know, your mind immediately goes to sex. But you could almost replace the word intimacy in all of these with care. Intellectual care, emotional care. I mean, these are the things you are doing to care for, in this case, your significant other in a variety of different ways. And a lot of what you just described is physical care, taking care of someone when they're sick or when they are physically not feeling well. And that that's just as much intimacy as, you know, what we would think of typically. So the reason I chose the word intimacy rather than care is care you can do for anyone without having really uh, made any decision about who they are in your world, right? We can hire someone to come in and take care of wound care, uh, which is physical intimacy, but not really. What I mean by intimacy is this is something I do for you out of the love and care of our relationship, Hmm. not in exchange for money or because it's my job or any of those things but because it's out of choice for being with you. I wouldn't normally do this for anyone else. But these all do, these all could still apply to relationships outside your significant other. Sure. To, to varying levels, of course. Right, right. So, I, and I would suggest to you that it is to varying levels. I might be emotionally uh, intimate with my best friend, but not in the same way that I would be with my spouse, in the sense that I am creating a life with her that I'm not necessarily doing with my best friend. Same thing with intellectual intimacy. I have lots of people in my world that I share intellectual thoughts with, but I am creating a world with my partner. And that's, that's why the intimacy, it takes it one notch farther than you would with other relationships. All right, there's one more area of intimacy that we need to talk about, um, and that is spiritual intimacy. Kim, can you give us a definition of spiritual intimacy? I don't know about a definition, but I can walk my way around it. So a lot of people will probably hear the term spiritual and immediately jump to God or religion of some kind. But spiritual intimacy is not just limited to that. If you look at spiritual as your connection to something bigger and greater than you, so possibly your community or, you know, some form of some form of an energy or a meaning that is greater than just you. Some way that helps you understand that we're connected to all the other living things on this planet, um, and maybe even the non-living things. I mean, we can get super philosophical here, but it's this idea that it's not just me. I'm not just going through the world trying to get whatever I can get for me as much as I can, and then I die and I disappear. And this doesn't mean you have to believe in an afterlife or in uh, a God or in a religion, but in a sense that there is more than just whatever my needs are. And that if I care for the needs of someone else, and if I extend that to caring for a larger group of folks, that there is greater meaning in that for me and a better and deeper life, particularly if I can do that with my spouse, my lifelong partner. What is it between us that exists that I can nurture, support, grow so that it bears fruit that's different than the fruit that I can do just from my own labors and my own self? It's pretty deep. It is. So that's all. That's the four areas, kind of a good overview of the four areas. Do, do you feel like 
they are all of equal import? Are some of them more or less important than the others? It's going to depend on the person, right? In reality, you need all four of these things to be healthy. In what proportion really will depend on you. But think about it in your own relationships, right? When you share intellectually, and I know, I know you do this with, with Sarah. You guys have had great talks um, that I've had the privilege of just overhearing about a book or a magazine article or that kind of thing. That's intellectual intimacy. You know, thinking about how does this work or how does that work? Um, that's wonderful. You guys have probably heard Mama and I talking about the various businesses I've run over the years. And she's been, even though she's not an entrepreneur, she's been very helpful in asking questions that got me to think about things differently than I would before. Again, intellectual intimacy. Um, when you share emotions, each of you has friends and you know how you share with a friend. But when you have a significant other, you might share a little deeper because the trust is a little greater. And the, the belief that your partner is not going to use that information to harm you. The trust is really important. Like you said, intimacy also implies a lot of trust. Yes. And we talked about trust a little bit last episode, maybe the one before that. What would you say to folks who maybe have difficulty with trust, difficulty with trusting friends, family, significant others? How, what are some ways to build up to these levels of intimacy in these areas? if trust is a challenge for you? So as someone who struggles with trust <laughs> and building intimacy in relationships, our quote of the day speaks to that greatly. Keeping your heart open provides the opportunity for that. And it is practice. And it is finding someone who you start to feel comfortable with and trying it out in little steps. And surrounding yourself with people who respect your need to experience these things slowly. Sharing intellectual intimacy and emotional intimacy with friends can be really intimidating for someone who has trouble trusting or has had their trust broken in the past. And that's really where you're going to see those strifes in relationships. I can't speak to significant other trust building. But with friends, um, as far as building that trust, it takes time and time again of that person showing you, right? So their behavior helps reinforce your engagement with it. And it becomes a reciprocal thing as far as encouraging you to continue to trust further and deeper each time. So if you want to look at the specific behavioral components that go into trust, there are four key components that you can look to and measure in terms of how well is trust building between us. So the first one is reliability. Does the person do what they say they're going to do? And if they can't do what they say they're going to do, do they admit that quickly and make a plan for how they're going to get it done? That kind of person is very reliable. Or is it a kind of person that says, yeah, I'll do that, never gets it done. And then when he's called on it, says, I never agreed to do that. That's a very unreliable person. What's somebody in the middle? Person in the middle is someone who makes commitments, breaks them, says, oh, I'm sorry, then gets them done, but doesn't get them in a timely manner, where you kind of have to chase them a little, but they will get it done. They just don't do it from their own initiative. Right. That would be a mid-score. Yeah. I suspect a lot of people fall somewhere in the, the middle range. And over a course of time, they might be super reliable for a while, then some stressors happen for them and they become moderately reliable or perhaps even unreliable. Mm -hmm. 
And if that changes over time, that's really okay, but it's something to bring up. Right. You know? The second component is credibility. Do they really have the knowledge and experience to be talking about or dealing with whatever it is that is on the table? One of the best things to do if you're a trustworthy person is to say, you know what? I know this much about something, but I don't know enough. So I'm a very credible person to come to around psychological thought, certainly around relationships and marriage. That's what I've done for uh, four decades. You can come to me and ask about finance, and I know some things about that. But I am not a credible resource for finance. You should not do financial planning with me. That's not my thing. So credibility is an important component of trust. The third is approachability. How easy is it for me to come and tell you a story? Now, a person that's easy to tell a story listens, validates the story, and does nothing else. Just is there for the story that you share. So not me. Doesn't have to fix it. Doesn't have to one-up it. Doesn't have to match it. Just listens, reflects it back, and is present to you. That's a very approachable person. Now, most of us tend to want to parallel. So you tell me a story, I want to give you a parallel story. Well, we like to talk about ourselves. That's the problem. (laughs) Or we want to fix it. Unless you ask me to fix it, that's not what most people really want. They want to be seen and heard. So approachability, a high approachability score, the person just listens and reflects it back to you. Low approachability score, they match your story or try to fix whatever's going on with you. Now, those three components, think about whatever number you give them on a scale of one to nine. Um, Add that together and then divide it by self-orientation. So if the person I want to trust really only cares about themselves and are going to bring up their own story or one-up my story or go, you know, that's really not very important. Let's talk about something else. The higher that self-orientation number, the lower the trust will be. And you can actually calculate trust that way. How trustworthy is a person? Do we have like a uh, worksheet or something we can print out? Yes, actually we do. We can link it in the, in the show notes Yes, for the uh, mathematical folks out there. Want to go calculate some trust? It's very helpful. Who knew that being bad at math would ruin all of my future relationships? It's really simple math. Ugh, but apparently I'm still really bad at it. Well, the hard part is, is finding people who will do those things and who will take feedback when, when they're not. One of the things mama still gets on me about, she'll bring me something and she'll be in distress and that stresses me out. I don't like seeing her upset. And even though I tell folks you need to let people have their own emotions, when you love somebody that gets in the way from time to time. And I will sometimes move to trying to fix whatever it is she's telling me and she doesn't need me to fix anything. She's smart enough to handle that herself. So she'll get on me. She likes that. (laughs) Sorry, y'all didn't see the face Kim made. So all of the things we've talked about so far are measurable. Kim, can you give us a recap of the ways that we measure the areas of intimacy and the trust scale? For sure. So with intimacy, you'll want to measure monthly, quarterly, uh, usually no more than quarterly on a scale of one to 10. So one being like, oh, hey, we need to figure some stuff out here. And 10 being, hey, this is great. And I'm really happy that this is working out this way. Is that like a personal measurement? Like, like I'm thinking about how I feel about it with my partner? Or am I actually sitting down with my partner and 
you know, we both write down a number and then compare it and see <laughs> see what happens because that seems like a dangerous game. So initially, I would do it within yourself and analyzing where you fall in that relationship and bringing it up with your partner. And if you're both doing this on a regular basis, that conversation should be pretty easy to come towards. It would start to happen naturally. Right. Right. Uh, so that's the goal with that. With trust and the components of trust, you'll remember that we have reliability, credibility, approachability, and self-orientation. With that, you will add up your scores of one to nine, weird number there, one to nine for reliability, credibility, and approachability. And then you'll divide that total by the number that you come up with self-orientation. And that's something you could do with like a friendship relationship as well. Any Boss relationship, coworker, any of those. Anybody mm -hmm. that you run into, you're trying to kind of figure out, how much do I trust this person? That shady guy in the bar? Definitely. Certainly. It, with, with suppliers, with uh, contractors, all of those folks. And how much would you, I mean, I think the numbers sort of help you refine what you might call like a gut feeling about someone into a more tangible score. But what if you ran the numbers and you came up with a more trustworthy score than you really kind of gut feeling trust this person, how should you deal with that discrepancy? Does that happen or is it pretty accurate in your experience? So in my experience, it tends to be fairly accurate. And if you had a gut feeling that, that they are less trustworthy than your number came out, then go back and look at the components and say, have I overscored or underscored any of these? What is it about their behavior that's leading me to feel like I can't trust them? Behavior is truth. It very much is. And, you know, the other thing you were talking about, do I, do I sit down with my number and share it with my spouse? And then, you know, that could be a dangerous game. It's more important if you get a number and you say, you know what, our, our intellectual intimacy, we really haven't talked about anything of importance in a month. What are you going to do to bring that information to the table? It's not so much about saying, hey, I think our intellectual intimacy is low. Come and say, you know, am I sharing anything about what I'm reading, about what I'm learning, about what I'm doing at work? Right. It's easy to kind of have it become just a numbers game. You're just trying to score. Right. And that's not really what it's about. The goal here is to have a healthier, better relationship. Yeah. And to monitor your own behavior. Any of these things can be transformed by you. Personal responsibility. In fact, I think we said in a previous episode that you are the only thing that you can change. Correct. Amen. So this episode, we've gone over the four areas of intimacy. And then we also went over four indications of trust and how to calculate scores for all of that so you can kind of assess where you are in your relationships and make changes to improve them. That's pretty cool. That's really powerful. Now, that's a lot of stuff to handle while still holding down a full-time job, taking care of kids, pets, and taking care of yourself. So we're going to cover that next week. Thank you for listening to The Relationship Road Trip. You can find more episodes of this podcast at your favorite podcast source. If you have questions or topics you would like us to consider, please email us at questions at afpsych.com. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology. You can learn more about their services at azevedofamilypsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. For more information, visit bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you, may the wind be always at your back, and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Thank you.